Well, last week, um, we, we looked at the promises of God um, in John chapter 17 and how he promises to, to keep us, uh, using his strength to uh, uphold us, uh, and that it's the word of truth that actually does that in us. Uh, but he doesn't just simply save us and then kind of preserve us in our state, sort of frozen in time like a photograph or a statue remaining in the same state for the rest of our lives. Uh, he actually saves us, and then he goes to work inside of us. So he doesn't just make the purchase and say, okay, it's done. Now moving on to the next person. No, he says, I'm, I've saved you, and now I'm going to go to work in you. He begins to change us. The saying that we've heard a lot, and it's a true saying, Jesus loves you just as you are. And that's true, but sometimes we can use that as an excuse. Well, he just loves me just as I am, so therefore, I don't have to change. Well, it's true that he loves you just as you are, but he loves you so much that he will not leave you as you are. He wants to not just save you in all of your mess, and we all have mess, he wants to actually save you, and he wants to free you from that mess. He wants to change you. He wants to transform you. And so the moment that you are born again, the moment you are saved, the moment he opens your eyes and your ears and opens your heart, he starts to go to work inside of you, and he will be at that work until the day you go to be with him. And that, church, is actually a promise. Not just kind of a general, oh, that's nice if it happens, it's not an if. Well, that's a promise. He will be at work in you until the day you go home. From the day he adopts you to the day you go home, he will be at work in you. And as we've been doing the last couple of weeks before I read in John 17, since this is this high priestly prayer, this incredible moment that we get to peer into, in these final hours of Jesus' life, I'd like you to stand with me as I read through today's text in John 17, and then I'm going to pray and ask the Holy Spirit, who has been put inside of us, to work us, to change us, to transform us. I'm going to ask him to do that very thing by taking this very word and transforming us with it. So John 17, I'm going to start in verse 9, and I'm going to read through 19. So I'm going to back up a bit so we get some context, go through 19. So John chapter 17, verse 9. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask 
that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Father in heaven, this is your word that you've given us. These are even the very words spoken by your son as he prayed to you only hours before he made his sacrifice for us. And he prayed for us. He prayed for each and every one of those that you gave to him to save. And so we ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit, who lives and dwells in every believer, would take these very words spoken by the very Son of God, that he would take these words, drive them into our hearts. These words would affect us. That they would reshape us. That they would cleanse us. Purge us. They would broaden our view of who you are. Give us a bigger picture of who you are. That these words would wipe off the, the grime and the dirt and the fog off of our, the lens of our eyes so that we can see you more clearly and behold your majesty, your beauty higher and higher. We thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you for this great gift of being able to eavesdrop, so to speak, in this high priestly prayer. What a gift this is. To read and hear the very heart of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're grateful, O oh Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can be seated. So Jesus here, he prays to his father for his disciples that are still in the world, specifically the ones that are there with him. And he prays that his father would keep them in his name. And then he prays and says, Father, I'm coming to you now, and I pray that they may have joy, my joy, fulfilled in themselves. He says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world. Just like how I'm not of the world. So it makes sense that the world's going to hate them. So Jesus prays that they would have joy. They would have joy. Even though they're still in the world and the world's going to hate them, he prays that they would have joy. This isn't a joy that comes from circumstances doesn't come from having good days or a good life or financial stability, future outlook that looks good, a great relationship you're in, or any kind of joy or happiness that comes from the world, because he makes it clear that in this life, you will suffer. You will endure hardship and pain and sorrow. And in this life, the world will hate you if you're following Jesus. 
He's been making it clear on his walk with them from the upper room through the old city. And now in this prayer, he's been telling them all these things. The world's going to hate you. If you follow after me, it's not going to be easy for you. But I'm going to pray for your joy. Even though you're going to face opposition because you're not of the world, and you follow me, but I'm going to pray for your joy, a joy that comes from knowing Jesus. But, but not only even just that, not just a joy that comes from knowing him, but a joy that comes from him. Even his own joy, he is praying that my joy would be in them. We've been grieving these last couple of weeks the loss of our sister. And one thing that continually is mentioned is the joy that we all had by knowing her. We had joy because we knew Brittany. But imagine just for a moment if it was possible to have her joy infused in you. That'd be nice. That'd be nice if we just exploded in the way that she did when she talked about Jesus. It would be amazing to have her joy inside of us, but that's just not humanly possible from flesh to flesh. We can have the joy of knowing her, but we can't have her joy inside of us. But that can happen with Jesus, because Jesus isn't just simply human. He is God. He is spirit. And because he does live inside of us. Because Christ lives inside of us, we can actually have his joy. Even in our world, even with this mind that, that screws with us all the time and messes with us all the time and gets in the way and lies to us and condemns us, this heart that condemns us, even with all this mess, we can actually have the joy of the Lord because he's inside of us. Look again at verse 13. Jesus says, Now I'm coming to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Not, not their joy. Not just have them be joyful, but I want my joy fulfilled in them. It's a joy that will keep them strong as they endure the trials of this world. Verse 14, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world just as I'm not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world just as I am not of the world. In these last couple of weeks, we've experienced some of the most pointed realities of what it means for us to be in this world yet not of this world. Because as Christians, we know that this world is not our home. We know that as Christians, we know that this world was not Brittany's home. We, we know that. We know that we long for a better country, a greater kingdom. We know that we're just pilgrims and sojourners, travelers passing through this life. We know that our best days are ahead of us. Our best days are always going to be ahead of us because we're not of this world. But yet... We're still in this world. 
And that means real pain, real sorrow, and real darkness. And here Jesus makes mention of that again. I'm no longer in the world, but they are still in the world. Verse 16, they're not of the world. Even though he just said we're in the world, but we're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. But Jesus' prayer is not to take us out of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but here's his prayer that you, Father, would keep them from the evil one. So his prayer isn't to remove us from this world, this world which is filled with pain and suffering and trials, but it's to keep us, to preserve us, to hold us and sustain us while we are in this world. His prayer is that we would have joy that comes from outside of the world while we're living through hardship and suffering while we're still in the world. Joy amidst sorrow. It seems impossible. It seems maybe a bit delusional. Maybe it sounds a little phony, like fantasy. Like you just kind of got your head in the clouds or like an ostrich with your head in the sand. It sounds a little disconnected maybe. But it's possible. And Jesus prayed this for us. And he also tells us how this comes about. Church, do you, do you want that kind of joy in your life? The kind of joy that comes even in darkness? Do you need that kind of joy that surpasses anything we're going through? I know I need that. So here's what Jesus says. Here's what he prays. And this shows us how this comes about in our life. He says in verse 17, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. He says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So the key to finding this joy and being preserved to the end in the face of trials and suffering and persecution, the key to this church is change. But not change in our circumstances. He says, no, I'm not praying you take them out of the world. It's not a change in your situation. But it's a change in your own heart. It's a transformation that you need, that I need. It's a renewal. It's an awakening. It's a resurrection. Jesus calls it sanctification. He says, sanctify them. In your notes, just a short definition here. Sanctification, it means to be made holy. To be set apart. He's saying, Father, make them holy. Father, set them apart. It shares a root with the word saint. A saint is someone who has been set apart by God. For those of you who might have Growing up with a Catholic background, you might think that saints are just kind of reserved for, you know, the big guns, the varsity team, but that's not true. Anyone who is a born-again believer, sealed with the Holy Spirit, adopted as a son or daughter, you are a saint. You might not act like a saint sometimes, but you are a saint. You have been set apart by God to be saved. 
You've been set apart by God to be adopted, chosen from before the foundation of the earth to be his. You have been set apart. And so Jesus here says, Father, sanctify them. Set them apart by your truth. When the Father chose you and gave you to Jesus to save, the Father was separating you from out of the world. And he gave you to Jesus so that Jesus would come and that he would die for you and in your place. And by doing so, he would wash all of your sinfulness from you, past, present, and future, all of your regrets, all of your missed opportunities, all your mistakes, all of your weaknesses. They've been washed by his blood when he set you apart, when he saved you. Uh, think of his blood kind of like a spiritual paint thinner. It covers you, it pours over you, and it strips you of all of your sin. All that sin that's covering your soul, it just melts and dissolves off of you as soon as that blood hits you. It's like this paint thinner that just, that just strips all of that away. And now you're, you're perfectly just bare before him with no mark of shame, no mark of condemnation, no nothing. But then, incredibly, that, that same paint thinner, that same blood, then also acts as a new coat of paint. So it doesn't just leave you bare, but it actually covers you anew but not with paint. It covers you in his righteousness. It covers you in his beauty. You become beautiful and accepted in his sight. Before that moment, you're covered in this grime and rust. All this sin and filth your arrogance, your pride, all these things. And then all of a sudden, this paint thinner comes and just strips it all away. Now, now you're bare. Now you've got nothing. But he doesn't stop there. He then covers you brand new with beauty. And now that action of being covered being sort of repainted over, first stripped and then repainted over, that action, that, that moment that I just described more specifically is known as the moment that we're justified. And that's when we're justified. It's the moment that the Father reveals Jesus to you, reveals your sin to you and your need for him, and reveals to you what he has also done for you. It's in that moment that you first believe for real, the moment you first receive the word of God, and the moment that the word of God makes you born again, that's that moment, that, the stripping of that paint thinner, that new coat of paint, that's that moment of justification. And for me, that moment was 24 years ago last week, August 21st, 1997. And we've been looking at that a lot the last couple of weeks in John 17, that moment of justification. But justification is really just one piece of the larger event. And the larger event begins at that moment of justification, but then it continues every day of your life, even every moment of your life until the end. Justification just kind of gets the ball rolling. And that process that begins at the moment of justification and goes until the end of your days, 
That process is called sanctification, being set apart, being changed, being transformed, being made holy. From the time you are born again, the Holy Spirit inside of you, given to you in that moment, will now be continually working in you and setting you apart. Now, it's important for you to know that you will always be eternally set apart. You'll always be that if you're born again. A paint thinner comes, strips off the sin, puts on the new coat. That new coat stays there forever. No one can snatch you out of his hands. How good or how righteous you live isn't going to affect that. That new paint won't get scarred by your own sin. It is preserved for eternity. But yet, going back into John 17, we do see that even though we're not of the world, right? We're, we're set apart. Stripped and repainted, set apart, but we're still in the world. So this is sure, but yet we're still here in the world. So that means that even though we are spiritually, we're perfectly set apart, sealed with the guarantee of the Holy Spirit, but while we are still here, we're in the world, and that means we're still living inside of this, what the Apostle Paul calls a body of death. So there's this kind of weird thing where we're already pure and beautiful in His sight, but yet we are not yet totally pure and beautiful in the way we live. So sometimes we call this the already and the not yet, this kind of weird little partnership thing. An example I've used before, and you can, we've used this when we kind of think about the world we live in now, but I'm going to use this even for our sanctification. The example of, of D-Day, June 6, 1944. The war, World War II, was decided on June 6, 1944. There was no going back. There was no way Nazi Germany was going to win the war. The battle was decided on June 6. But after June 6, and for almost a whole entire year, there was still insurgency from Nazi Germany. There were still battles. Even though their back was broken, they were going to lose, but they kept fighting. And it wasn't until later, May 8th, which was VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. That's when it was finally decided the war is over, Victory Day. So likewise, for me, 24 years ago, D-Day arrived on August 21st, 1997. The battle was decided on that day, and there was no going back. It was going to happen no matter what. The Holy Spirit took the love of God and stormed the beach of my heart. He took the beach and the fate of the war inside me was decided that day and there is no going back for Joby. There's, just, there's no way I'm going back because the war was decided. But my VE day, or really my VJ day, my victory of Joby, that day is not yet here. That day arrives when I go home. Brittany already had VB day. But my VJ day is not yet here. D-Day, I'm his. That battle's been won. But there's still some insurgency in my own heart. There's still struggles in my own mind. There's still battles of my flesh. Battles of sin and fear depression, self-reliance, condemnation, they just, they pop up. 
even though the battle's been won, but I'm still stuck in this body. And so the Holy Spirit is, is just going throughout the land of my heart and putting down these insurgencies that pop up all the time. There's no going back. The old Joby's dead. The war's been decided, but the Holy Spirit is still active in me until VJ Day, whenever that might be. The Holy Spirit's going to put down these pockets of sinful attitudes that still remain. Or maybe think of it this way. Uh, you're in the market for a home, you find a nice fixer-upper. It's a good investment. You like the neighborhood, whatever it is that draws you to it, but it's a fixer-upper. The previous owner wrecked it, destroyed it. It is a mess. Bad plumbing, bad electrical, you name it. But you buy it anyway, and you get to work. You don't just flip it in one day, hey, look, it's magically fixed. But you work on it piece by piece, day by day. It is yours for sure. Your name's on the deed. The old owners do not own it any longer. But there's plenty of evidence that makes it seem like they still live there. Right, does that make sense? You're moving this house and you're fixing it over here. But it looks like they still live here because you haven't touched it yet. But they don't own it. They've, they've been kicked out. They're gone. You're the sole owner, but it looks like they still are there. But no, no, it is your house and only your house, though there's evidence of the previous owners. And so it is with you and with me. The day that Christ reveals himself to you, he bought you with a price. He saw you in your disrepair as this fixer-upper, you were a mess inside and out, and he bought you with the price of his own blood. He paid the payment, and he purchased you, even though you were a wreck. And guess what, church? You are no longer yours any longer, but you are his. He is the one who owns you now, who dwells inside of you now. You no longer live and dwell and own this life of yours because he has bought you with the price. And you're this fixer-upper. You've ransacked your body and filled it with sin, with selfishness and pride and arrogance and self-centeredness and sexual sin and greed. You name it, you filled it. But he bought you anyway. He bought you anyway. I have been evicted by Christ. And it's no longer I who live in this temple. But it is Christ who now lives in me. And the life I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says also in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? If you say yes, yes, I'm born again, yes, I'm, I've been saved, I've been adopted, I am in Christ, guess what? You are a new creation. You're brand new. Whatever happened before D-Day in your life, 
whether it was 24 years ago or 24 days ago or 24 hours ago, whatever happened before D-Day does not matter. Because that man, that woman has been crucified with Christ, evicted from this house. It's no longer that old person who lives, but it's Christ now who lives in you. So if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away, been evicted. Behold, the new has come. It's like a wedding day. A bride goes to the altar still bearing her last name. On her new name, the new has come. That marriage is a brand new thing, a brand new creation. The old has passed. She has a new name. This is why we become baptized. It signifies that the old me has passed away. The old me has been evicted. We go under the water as a sign of the old us being crucified with Christ. The old us no longer living in this home, but we come up from out of the water with new life. Baptism is sort of like a, a wedding ring, the outer symbol that tells the world around you, sorry, but I'm taken. And I want everyone to know that I'm taken. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture, all of God's word is breathed out by God and profitable for a few things here. God's word is good and helpful for teaching us, for reproof, for correction, and for training us in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So God's word teaches us, reproves us, corrects us, it trains us, but look at the reason why. The reason why it does all is so that the man of God would be complete and equipped for every good work. So right now in life, you might not feel very complete. You might feel very incomplete. I know we all are feeling like that. So many of us are, are just feeling at such a, a loss and unsure and in some confusion and just whirlwind and roller coaster of emotions and thoughts. We feel very unequipped. And, and, and if you feel that way for whatever reason, I'll just tell you right now, it, it's okay because you are ill-equipped. All of us are. Because VE Day hasn't come yet. We still need sanctification. We still need some change. So, so yeah, we're incomplete. Right now, we are incomplete because we're in this already not yet. The not yet part means you're incomplete. But God is not done with the remodel. And he won't be done until you go home. And so God's word is alive and active and it's there to correct you and teach you all these things so that you would be made complete, so that you would be sanctified and changed and transformed. Looking back at John 17, Jesus is praying that we would have joy even though in this world we're going to be hated, even though we're going to have trials, he prays for joy. And this is impossible, church, unless we are sanctified, unless we are changed, unless we're being changed on the inside, unless we're being renewed. Our whole world could be crumbling around us and we find ourselves lost and confused, but even still we can know that the Holy Spirit is at work in us, renewing us and renovating us day by day, making it possible for us to have joy even in seasons of trial. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, so we don't lose heart. 
Though our outer self is wasting away, this body, riddled with sin, it's wasting away. But our inner self is being renewed, transformed, sanctified, day by day. For this light and momentary affliction, it's hard for us to believe this at times, especially right now, but this life we live is momentary compared to eternity. It doesn't feel that way very often. We know that to be true. But this light and momentary affliction that we're going through right now is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, all we see right now is sadness, mourning, grief, death. That's what we see. That's what's right before us. And that's real because we are in this world. But we look not to just the things that are seen, but we look to the things that are unseen, the things that we can't imagine. Because the things that are seen, things right now before us, they're transient. They come and go. This life will be done in a blink of an eye in comparison to eternity. So the things that are right before us, the trials you're enduring, they're transient. They're not here permanently. But the things that are unseen, they're eternal. They are eternal. So we fix our eyes upon the eternal. I've told my dad over the last couple weeks since he was diagnosed with his cancer because during this time he has there's just been a lot of change in his heart a lot of transformation and I told him dad if you gave me the choice of having you here for only three more months or six more months but in that time you were convinced of God's love for you. If I could have a choice between that or 20 more years of you not being sure, not being convinced of God's love for you, I will take the three months. And it won't make the pain go away, it won't make the sorrow go away. I'm still in this world. And I'll be in this world without my dad. But I look to the things that are unseen. Not the things that are seen. Because I know this light and momentary affliction is preparing me for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. But I would rather have my dad's outer self wasting away with cancer but have his inner self being renewed day by day than have his outer self being totally healthy and free from cancer, but with his inner self wasting away. Which takes us to our last little bit here and some even better news than we've already heard today. Your sanctification, church, comes in a package deal. Your salvation has a bumper-to-bumper -bumper warranty with no expiration date and no follow-up robocalls to renew that warranty. Praise the Lord. 
from the moment you are born again until the day you go home to be with him for all eternity, you are covered. You're covered. The work of Jesus doesn't just make the initial purchase and then you have a copay or a deductible. You got to pay for all the maintenance and the upkeep. He doesn't just buy the house for you and then you have to pay for the remodel. That's not how it works. No, the work of Jesus includes the cost of keeping you all the days of your life and the cost of the remodel while you are still here in this world. That's why Jesus prayed what he prayed in John 17. I'm going to read again Romans 8, 28 that Katie read earlier. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called, those who are set apart according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined so he pre-chose, pre-set them apart, chose them out of the world to be conformed, transformed, sanctified to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Okay, so those who he set apart, he called them, and those whom he called, he justified. That's that initial work. That's D-Day. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Glorifying is, that's V-E day. And look, there, there's, no, there's no atrophy there. He doesn't say uh, some that he called, he justified, and some that he justified, he's going to glorify. No, all that he saves, he will glorify. Everyone who has had D-Day will see V-Day. That's a guarantee. It's a package deal. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 do you know, Paul says, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunks, nor revilers, nor swindlers, none of them will inherit the kingdom of God. Now you might be looking at this going, man, I'm, I'm there a couple times. So are you saying, pastor, that I'm not going to inherit the kingdom of God because I've been that? Look what Paul says next. Such were some of you, but you were washed. That paint thinner washed over you. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, I'm sure of this, that he, God, who began the work in you, who carried out D-Day, the God who bought the fixer-upper, the one who began a good work in you will come bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If he started the work, he's going to finish the work. That's his promise. And one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons he does this work in you is not just to make your life better, not just for your benefit, but it's so that you would now be a blessing to other people. So that you can now be an example, a testimony for others, others whose eyes are not quite open. They need to hear the word of truth. They need to hear the, the goodness of God. That's why Jesus says in chapter 17, verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And God uses you and me to do this. And I'm telling you, as Sure, if the sun sets every single day, church, I am the last person you would ever expect to be leading a church. Honestly, this is kind of a joke. Like, this should not have happened. It really does not make any sense. 
If you knew me 24 years ago, but God has sanctified me. He's changed me. He's transformed me. He's given me different and new desires. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. God saved you so that he would send you into your world. It's God's desire to sanctify you, to change you, to work in you so that you would change not only for your own sake, but for the sake of those around you. Church, you've been saved to be sent. And guess what happened when you see God use you? You get filled with joy. And isn't that exactly what Jesus prayed? That we would have joy. Even though we're still in this world. To have this joy, to have this change, we need God's word to sanctify us. Like the old saying goes, you are what you eat. Let God's word be your bread. The very thing that gives you life and sustains you. Spend time each day somehow in his word and you watch him go to work. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful, so amazed that you saw us, this beaten down dump of a place, and you bought us falling over, no hope, ugly, ransacked, condemned. And you bought us. You chose us from out of the world. You gave us to your son. And he came here to pay to purchase us and pay for all of the back taxes, all of the construction costs. He paid for everything. He purchased us. And he, he moved in. And he started to go to work in us. And your word promises us that you, God, who have begun a good work, you're going to finish it until the day we go home, until VE Day. You will be at work inside of us, sanctifying us, transforming us, driving your word, your living and active word in our hearts, equipping us for every good work. And you do all of this, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of those in our lives who don't know you. You send us into our schools and our workplaces, our families, our neighborhoods. You send us there to make your glory known, to make your beauty known, to make the good news known. And when that happens, when you use us in those unlikely ways that just don't make any sense, it brings such joy to us. Help us, Lord, in our grieving, in our sorrows, in our struggles, in our confusion, in our pain. Help us in our, our sin, our condemnation, our, our shame. That your word would set us free from these things. That you would walk with us through our sorrows. That you would lead us and guide us just step by step 
as we fumble through this life. We're grateful, Lord, that it's on you and your strength and the rock of Jesus Christ that this is what we stand upon. We thank you, Lord, for washing us, cleansing us, and making us new. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.